Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we are lucky to be speaking with another one of our esteemed NILA colleagues. Today we are speaking with Denise DeBell, the founder of the law office of Denise M. DeBell. Denise serves a moderate income clientele in employment disputes, as well as fair housing and housing discrimination, and has some other areas of practice as well, like representing condo associations, as well as condo unit owners and certain disputes related to that. She's also a past board member of NILA Illinois and a past co-chair and really one of the re-founders, we should say, of the legislative committee in its current iteration. And Denise is currently one of the co-chairs of the IDES, or Unemployment Insurance Benefits Subcommittee, which she helped co-found in the midst of the pandemic through her work on the legislative committee. Denise, welcome. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's jump right in. We actually wanted to cover a specific law topic with you and something that you have some experience in topic-wise for something that I think a lot of our members maybe struggle with or just encounter a fair amount. And that is this niche issue of the ministerial exception. What is an exception to? What is the ministerial exception? Okay, basically the ministerial exception has been carved out by the courts to respond to the First Amendment's requirement that courts not get entangled with religion. So it's a basically putting into practice the need to, in in employment disputes, when you have a religious employer that is being sued, to not entangle with the decisions of that religious employer. And the, both the free exercise clause of the First Amendment as well as the non-establishment clause is implicated with all of this. So basically, to kind of amplify it a little bit more, a lot of times people will easily understand, if, if you say, of course, the courts cannot decide who a particular religious organization will use as their minister. I'm using the word minister, of course, in a, in a generic sense, not just the way Protestants refer to ministers, but any any religion. So the courts will say, we can't, for instance, take a case from a, a woman who wants to be a Catholic priest and she sues the Catholic diocese or church, whatever, to say, you know, that sex discrimination, you should let me be a priest. Okay. That's probably an obvious example, right? People would say, okay, I get it. All right. When it gets a little bit more dicey or a little bit more contentious is when it's someone who is not a clergy person, does not have the title of a clergy person, but works for a religious organization and sues under either Title VII or other employment statutes. And in those cases, the courts have to decide, are we in deciding that person's case going to get entangled with matters that are left properly to the decision-making of that religious organization? Going to that last example, that the latter half of that, what are examples then of situations in which it's more gray in terms of whether or not someone's a minister and then the implications of employment law? 
Okay, so you've got a, a good one is was dealt with by the Supreme Court in the Morrissey, excuse me, Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beirut. And in that case, the, the person who was the plaintiff was a teacher in a Catholic school, but she did not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna review to make sure that I'm I'm right about the facts here. She did not even claim that she was responsible for teaching religious doctrine. However, the court really saw it as because of the important role that teachers play in sort of, because the mission of the school is partly a religious mission, even though of course secular subjects are taught, but other topics of religion are taught and the teacher is sort of the, the transmitter of those values and of those doctrines to the students. So the court said the fact that she could not say, you know, in other words, the the plaintiff in that case made a big deal about the fact that the person had no training in theology, was not, you know, did not go specifically to get instruction in how to teach uh, doctrinal stuff. The court said that isn't that isn't necessary. She still was responsible for transmitting the religious mission of the school and therefore she should fall her case will fall under the ministerial exception. So who kind of essentially determines whether someone's a minister? Is there a lot of deference given to, I guess, the employer or the school in this circumstance or the church? Or are courts trying to determine if that definition of minister is reasonable? Well, the courts have to determine the definition is reasonable, but the recent case law is all about how we don't want to get hung up on the title of the person. So that can cut both ways, of course, because sometimes the person, so in other words, there was, I'll just give two contrasting cases. There was a man who was the music director at a church. He was responsible for selecting the music for different holidays that would be celebrated at mass. And he he lost because of the ministerial exception and the ministerial exception even though he was trying to say that his case was all about, I think it was a sex discrimination case. He might have been, it might've been a sexual orientation discrimination case. Anyway, the, the, the courts basically said, you know, if we decide whether or not the religious employer's claim is correct, we have to look into what is the correct doctrine. So in other words, we have to, the courts have to get involved in deciding what is the correct doctrine. And that's exactly what they don't want to get entangled with. On the other hand, in another case, there was a guy who was a music director or had some title like that. And the defendant employer said, oh, you know, he's a music director. So just like that other case, you should say he's a minister. And the court said, yeah, but no, we don't see that the facts, I think it was at the summary judgment stage, we don't see that the facts necessarily show that this person has any decision-making role as to what the religious, you know, things that implicate the religious doctrine or the religious mission of that particular church. So in that case, the court said, no, the fact that he has that title isn't, isn't, or isn't, isn't enough, I guess you would say. So So, um, to, to, to back up, I guess, just bigger picture, we're taking situations like sex discrimination, like what you've described, we're under most employment circumstances, you put them with a public employer, you put them with a private employer, basically anywhere but a religious institution. The decisions as to who gets hired and fired are obviously still their prerogative, but you can't discriminate. 
But I, I think maybe the simplest way to break it down, right, is because you have an institution that, quali- whether it's a, a literal church or, or synagogue or some other religious entity in that sense, if they fall under that exemption or that exception, whatever we're going to refer to it, those decisions that normally would be under the purview of the courts to view whether or not they're legitimate or not are for that reason no longer the case. That's not the case anymore. Now you get more leeway with your hiring and firing than really most people would. That That is the way, practically speaking, it works. Yeah, it does, because the courts are just really, seem really convinced that if you have to consider, for instance, like I said already about pretext, if you have to look more deeply into pretext, you actually have to almost decide, okay, a church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever says, this is our doctrine. This particular employee violated that doctrine. Something they did was not consistent with that doctrine. Okay, for the courts to decide whether that's true or not, they have to almost decide what the legitimate doctrine is. Because if if you're if you're you know if that's the basis and the defendant excuse me the plaintiff is saying no that's pretext the real reason they fired me because of my age or my disability or whatever it is then the courts have to in order to examine that pretext have to actually say okay this is what really was the church's motivation and the courts have been real clear that the motivation is not what they're going to look at they're only they're only protecting the act the decision to whatever it was to fire that person rather than the motivation behind it. Cause that's when they get entangled in all this stuff that implicates the first amendment. So let me run yeah, two scenarios by you. I think the first one's a little bit more clear cut. If, if let's say a religious school wants to separate a teacher who falls under the definition of minister and they say they're doing it because of their religious doctrine and the teacher, let's say, believes it's because of their sexual orientation, mm-hmm. the courts are going to say that school has that right. Am I understanding that part correctly? Yeah, unless, again, they are going to look at the minister issue because what I don't sure. want to leave the impression. Right, that, right. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming not that all they're religious. a minister. Yeah. yeah. Assuming they're yeah. a minister, they fall under that definition. The school is going to have the authority to separate someone if they just say, look, it's part of our doctrine. That's the reason we're doing this. That's right. Well, whatever they say, really. I mean, the courts are really almost saying they're not. it doesn't even matter what the defendant says their motivation is. I mean, obviously, the defendant isn't going to say our motivation was sex discrimination, right? Right, but right. I mean, the, but the court is not going to delve into that. No. Now, now the one little carve out here that's kind of <laughs> might, might give people some reassurance or, or hope or whatever is that this was in our circuit. Demkovich is the case. And the court did something real interesting there because what they said was it was, a, not a, it was not a termination decision. It was a hostile environment claim. And in fact, this happened in, with a sex harassment claim in California also. Anyway, the plaintiff was saying they were subjected to harsh harassment because of their sexual orientation, because the man was overweight, I believe. So this pastor of this church, he was, the, the employee was a music director of some kind. The pastor of the church was just, you know, a nasty piece of work, apparently, and made life really difficult for him. So the court said, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, we, we respect that ministerial exception. But in this case, the fact that it was a hostile environment claim, that's not a tangible. They made this distinction between a tangible employment action and a non-tangible. So a hostile environment claim is basically you're saying, you know, that the right that the workplace was made intolerable and therefore the person, you know, has a claim. 
And the court said, you know, this religion, uh, the, the, the religious employer here, would certainly not be able to claim that it was part of their doctrine to harass people. Okay, so the 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 act of the harassment is in the manner of a tort, and and tortious actions employers don't have the right to impose torts on their employees. So it was not it did not fall under the the whole concern being you know that an employer should have the right to manage and supervise and possibly fire an employee. But in this case, it wasn't a, it wasn't a termination that the uh, plaintiff was alleging. It was only the hostile environment. So that case was allowed to go forward. Although I don't know, I feel like Westboro Baptist Church's model is very uh, harassment driven. So maybe for them, it would be it would be protected because that's their whole thing, right? Show up and start yelling at people at various events. Um, well, uh, okay, I, I, I can't comment on that. But you know, the other reason that this came up in a sex harassment case as well, um, where it was actually a seminarian in a Jesuit, a Jesuit seminary, and he uh, he was sexually harassed and claimed that because of it, he didn't go forward to be ordained as a priest. And so again, the, the Jesuits could not claim that that harassment was part of what they were trying to teach and part of what they were trying to enforce. And so he, he was allowed to go forward with his claim too. Denise, does the, when you talk about not being able to make tangible employment, the court not waiting into tangible employment decisions, what about, and forgive us for springing the hypothetical on you, but there was a lacrosse, there was a case in the news in the last year locally about a lacrosse coach, I think, at a Catholic school in a suburb somewhere that mm-hmm. was fired when she basically, I think if memory serves, the school figured out she identified as LGBTQ because of who her emergency contact was, was her partner or her wife. I, I don't know. I mean, does a lacrosse coach or a sports coach fall under the definition of of ministers, so to speak, in that case? Because I know they did reinstate her, but I don't think it was because of a lawsuit. I think it was because the public outcry was so ugly, it it became a political oh, decision. But I think I might have heard something about that, too. I think I know it was an, it did make the news. I think in that case, unless that coach also handled religious education classes or, or was some sort of a spokesperson for the school, because that's another thing that might that might qualify someone as a minister, unless that coach was doing that, I would say that that doesn't strike me as that that person was a minister. So I guess that leads me to my next question. How, maybe we don't have a good answer to this. How narrow or broad do courts define minister? Is that, are they basically going to defer to the institution or the entity, or are they going to like nitpick a little bit? It's interesting you say that because they don't completely defer in other words, they still think we have to look at that. You know, they don't, if the defendant says, look, we're minister and the court says, okay, 12B6 granted. No, it's not that easy, you know, but they do give a lot of deference. So if it was Justice Thomas in one of his decisions, in one of the decisions that might've been Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey, he, no, actually it was twice, I think. He would say, I think if the religious employer says they're a minister, we shouldn't even inquire any further. Okay. He would say that, but I don't believe that's the majority opinion of the court. So, so they still have to look at it. You know, they still have to do some examination. And it sounds like, so this is kind of my other hypothetical I was going to mention earlier. It seems like once the court has determined that the minister definition applies, the institution's going to get carte blanche to apply it. So for example, if let's say someone is nearing the age of 65 and a institution says, we're separating because of our doctrine. 
that would kind of end the conversation. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? It'd be hard to bring like an age discrimination claim in that situation. I'm not sure I understand your question. You're so saying- the, Let's say you have a teacher who, or a pastor and they're 65 years old. So the school or the religious entity determines we're gonna separate, we're gonna terminate and they claim it's because of their religious doctrine. Would it be difficult for that employee to bring an age discrimination claim based on just like those limited facts? Yeah, I think it would. Again, as long as they, oh, if it was a pastor, for sure, there's no question there that, I mean, they're actually performing religious clerical duties. There would be no, that that person couldn't make an argument that they that they were not a minister. So yeah, they, they would not have an age discrimination claim. I, I don't see how they would. I just had a consult not, not long ago, I think just last week, and this person was with a particular religiously affiliated school. She was not a minister, but she was the seminary for the school and the school were sort of, they were separate, but they were sort of connected in some manner. I didn't quite understand, but she had the title of minister and had been ordained. She didn't, she was a teacher of theology. She didn't do any of the clerical duties, but I told her, you know, if you were to try to claim some sort of discrimination against this employer, I don't, I don't think you'd have much luck with that lawsuit. So yeah, there's, there's sometimes where it's, it's going to be a bar. Yeah. And does the exception then apply both on the level of liability solely, or does it also implicate damages? So for example, does it limit remedies an employee or individual may have because of the exception? There was one case where the court and forgive me, but I'm not remembering which one it was, but where the court said this plaintiff isn't asking for reinstatement, but only damages. And again, I can't remember the facts, but I think the, the court's holding would have permitted that person to go forward because reinstatement is much more likely to implicate, again, this whole idea of a church has the right to select who its ministers are. So if you're, you're telling somebody they're going to be reinstated, you're telling an entity they're going to have to reinstate this employee, then that specifically implicates that. If you're just telling them you got to pay the person some money, you know, not so much. So Can you I'm not And I apologize if I'm going to ask you this already, but what, is this just Title VII of the Civil Rights Act? What, what laws does this basically limit employees or workers' ability to utilize if they work for a religious institution? I, I, I believe it would implicate any employment statute, including the National Labor Relations Act. And, you know, sometimes the court will get into the sort of Lemon versus Kurtzman, you know, analysis from that, that First Amendment case that goes back to, I don't know what, the 60s or 70s or something. Sometimes they'll get into that to look at the statute more clearly because you might have to decide, does this statute implicate an important, does it infringe religion in any way? And they're normally going to decide it doesn't infringe religion, but then you move to the next part of the analysis, which is in this particular case, does applying that statute to this employment dispute implicate, again, the religious entanglement stuff that they're concerned about? So as long as they do that analysis, I mean, I think that's going to apply everywhere. And the, you know, the National Labor Relations is not applied to parochial schools. So, you know, teachers in parochial schools can't, can't do collective bargaining there. So as far as I know, that, that law is good law. So in I, had, I had to do some research on that at some point, I think. And I remember finding the same thing that's, that religious institutions can opt into or can basically 
out of the goodness of their whatever, agree to bargain collectively with their with their right. staff. But they don't have to do that and recognize right. human rights or or workers' rights that are always implicated. Denise, what about common law? Again, sorry to make this a quiz. It's just this is a unique topic yeah. I don't get to dig into too often. Yeah, and I and I don't pretend to be a scholar on it, by the way. You know, I'm just I'm very interested in it. So go you, ahead. You know more than us. Um, what about common law doctrines like various tort causes of action or contract law? Do religious institutions that are otherwise covered still have to abide by those common law rules, if you will? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, in the tort area, in the contract area, th- this ministerial exception is not usually going to be a successful way for the defendant to defeat the claim. Tort, and the court made specific mention, yeah, t- tortious actions, contractual actions really fall outside because, again, I, I think it... It relates to the whole idea that we, we want to look at the court say we want to look at how the decision that has to be made by the employer might implicate their mission, their doctrine, whatever, whatever um, some religious organizations might do that is tortious. The courts aren't going to, I think, easily regard that as flowing from doctrine. Okay. So because of that, you're going to be able to bring a tort action. You're going to be able to bring a simple contract action. I'm not as clear on the wage and hour, wage and hour claims, because as, as we all know, you know, under, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, motive is not, is not relevant. So if it's simply a wage and hour case, I would say, you know, even a minister should be able to make a claim. But I'm not, but that's just speculation. Well, and the, and the FLSA has various carve-outs of their own kind entirely independent of this. So to the extent there is one there, it's probably probably the kind of thing that's buried in the regulations so far, an exemption that none of us has come across yet. Yeah, it may indeed be since there's so much law on that, on that statute, right? <laughs> From 40 yeah. or 60 years of it or whatever it is. Yeah. Denise, this is a really obviously relevant and robust, but, but niche area. Why are you so well-versed on this? How did you find yourself how did you find yourself um, becoming such an expert? Like I say, I really don't think I'm an expert, but I had one case that I found particularly compelling who, this was a person who was a chaplain. She was of Episcopalian faith herself, but not a, a priest in the Episcopal church, but she was a chaplain in a Catholic hospital. And the defendant, of course, raised the ministerial exception and said that she could not bring a claim. The Facts, though, I didn't think supported that at all, because, again, the the overriding principle here is whether the employee is helping to carry out the mission of that religious organization. She had no role, as a Catholic chaplain would, in ministering, you know, the last rites, the Eucharist, any of the sacraments of the Catholic Church. She not only had no role, she would not have been qualified to do that. Her role was to minister, in fact, more and you know, in a counseling way to the non-Catholic patients in the hospital. So I don't believe in that case that she would, should have been qualified as a minister. She, however, when we were discussing settlement, she went ahead to settle because the defendant was waving this in her face 
and and she just got gun shy about it. So I, I, I wish we could have gone further with it because I had done the research on it and I thought I was ready to, you know, to do battle, but she, like I say, she got cold feet. So, so we didn't go further. I, I just found it, I, I guess I find the whole issues for any, any first amendment issue is, it has always been really interesting to me. And I'm being a first amendment advocate, you know, pretty much, you know, down the line. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the implications here for the first amendment religious stuff. I think it's really interesting. That's mainly why I'm interested in it, intellectual interest. As you've followed or as you've throughout your career interacted with this doctrine, how has it changed and how do you see it continuing to evolve, at least given the current makeup of our court system? Yeah, I I don't know that it has changed that much, you know, over, over the course. I think I don't see really there's a couple of, you know, Supreme Court justices that might have dissented in some of these cases, but I don't really see that that the change from the courts is going to be significant, if at all. You know, like I've already said about certain things that might be a carve out that might allow for a little bit of an exception to the ministerial exception, maybe that will continue. But I don't think the basic principle here is going to be attacked either in the courts or in the Congress. I guess I, I have to say that reading, the you know, it's sort of like as worker rights advocates, we might not be happy with the results in some of these cases because, you know, we read the facts and we say, wait a minute, this is just pretextual. This is a lot of hooey. We know what's really going on here. You know, and so we kind of object to an employer getting out, off the hook, right? But by the same token, I kind of agree with the court's analysis because if you want to put meat on the bones, of you know what it means to observe the First Amendment as regards religious institutions and separation of church and state, which we you know believe is a good thing. And if you want to put meat on those bones, this is the kind of way you do it. You know, so. And because this is the First Amendment issue, this isn't something you can really legislate. Anything like right. that, yeah. So if there is going to be change, I guess, to the exception, it would have to come from the church. It would have to be how they employ it and they'd have to make their own internal decisions. Exactly. And, and, and that's kind of the point, the, the, any changes that should be made, you know, from the standpoint of those of us looking at, at a particular doctrine or whatever, it's the, it's incumbent upon the people in that community to make those changes. So, so it's really, you know, as a matter of civil society, it's kind of out of our hands. Denise, other than your work, obviously representing folks who are kind of navigating this complicated issue, is there anything else you'd like to plug right now about your practice or just in general, before we before we sign off? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm still real, you know, keen on the legislative committee. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's, you know, it's, it's garnered more interest even from NELA members than when we started. And there's already we've had successes. And, you know, I just hope continuing, you know, that people will continue to give it attention and energy. And I want to continue to give it attention and energy. So my idea subcommittee, we're, we're, really, we're really excited. I do have to plug us because we are now, the idea subcommittee is probably now about 10. And we meet very regularly. We communicate regularly. And we are, you know, we're always kind of planning our next step. So we're, we're really, you know, we're pumped. And <laughs> it's, it's very exciting to see the number of people that will spend volunteer hours on this, in particular, since, you know, there isn't any tangible direct line to, you know, 
having more a more successful practice from doing this, right? It's truly a, a pro bono kind of effort, you know? So that's, I do want to plug that because I'm proud of that. I'm happy about that. The only, no, 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 it's okay. The only other one, other thing I wanted to say is, you know, if you're talking on a more personal level, I'm also- We are, very, we are. Okay. I'm also very happy that the website, I spent a considerable time and money on revising my website last year and it is bearing fruit. So it was, it was, terribly out of date. So it had to be out, it had to be updated. But I also got a videographer, I got a professional web designer. And it turns out that the, the money I spent apparently is worth it because I'm definitely getting more calls. So so I'm happy about that as well. Great. Well Denise, if people well first of all two things. You should be proud of uh, of what the legislative committee has done. And I I won't forget in 2018, right after the 2018 election, an email went out on Neela's listserv from you basically saying, guys, we're about to have a, a much more favorable legislature and an opportunity to to make some wins for workers, essentially, who's with me. And at least as far as I can tell, that was always the catalyst for everything that's come after. So you should be very proud of that. And I think we all owe you a lot for, for getting the ball rolling on it. But what is that website, Denise? Because we'll put it in the show notes. But if you want to read it to the people who are hopefully not driving sure. and perhaps might be sitting in front of a computer and able to plug it in. It's hyphen the word law.com. So as long as you know the spelling of my name, you can find it pretty easily. Make sure we put that in the show notes, but we do have one more thing for you while we're on the topic of plugging stuff. So we like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week. It can be pretty much anything you want to promote that's positive in the world. So it can be a book, it can be a pet, it can be a child, a TV show, (laughs) anything you want to shout out. So who is your shout out of the week? Okay, well... You know, and I didn't really give some thought to this before. I'm going to shout out about my son, who <laughs> is a news producer for the Channel 7 News, uh, the morning news. And he's, he's just doing a great job and has recently uh, been working with, apparently Channel 7 has hired a specialist in, in racial equity. So this person is going to be bringing more story, already has brought more stories in terms of the the whole racial justice issue in, in in you know in the news in Chicago. So I'm very happy that he's 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 worked with with this person on that. That's awesome. That's incredible. What's your son's name? Tim Salinger. Tim. Well, we'll shout but out. Tim. I didn't change my name when I married, so he has my husband's name. <laughs> well, Denise, thank you for all your hard work on behalf of workers. Congratulations on your new website, and thank you for having the guts to dive into this really complicated issue with us on record. It's something not a lot of us in our area get to work with a lot, so I think this is really informative for a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you, and thanks to both of you, by the way, on the Legislative Committee with all the work that you guys have both done. Thank you. Thank you, Denise. And thanks to everybody at home for listening. Please, uh, if you haven't already, subscribe and uh, share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.